0: Good morning. So I am really excited this morning for a couple of reasons. And when I'm excited, a lot of times it looks like nervous. So my hands are shaking. um, And if you see that, I just want you to recognize I'm excited. I'm excited because the parents are here this morning. Um, We're so glad to have you here. And one of the things I want you to know is that this church was started specifically with your students in mind. Um, My husband and I have been on staff at a church in Garland for about 15 years. Um, We were a pretty major part of that church there. And that staff willingly let us go to come up here to start this church to support your students while they're in college. Um, We have other families as well that have moved here or that are driving from the Frisco or the Plano area to be a part of this church to help your children grow in the Lord and to be a church family for them while they're away from home. And we are so honored that you would be here with them this morning and that you would share them with us and entrust us to fill that role in their lives. And so I'm really excited that you're here today. I'm also excited that Nate and James and William and Matt are here from Wiley. Um, they all hold very dear and special places in my heart, and so I'm excited that they're here. And then I'm just always excited to get up before you. I've told you a lot of times, and I'll keep telling you because I mean it from the bottom of my heart, there's no place I'd rather be. Then right here with you guys and i love you dearly and i cherish any opportunity i get to speak in front of you so our senior pastor is brad davis and he is actually speaking in wiley this morning and he wanted me to welcome you as well and let you know that he's sorry he couldn't be here but it just kind of worked out that way um, but hopefully um, you'll come back another time and get to interact with him as well We're in the middle of a series out of the Song of Solomon. And we are using the Song of Solomon as a springboard to talk about Christian sexual ethics. And so we're really examining why do I believe what I believe? And how does that line up with what the Bible says? And so we aren't using Song of Solomon necessarily as our text as much as we're using it as a springboard to talk about things involving Christian sexual ethics. Um, I had some people ask me this week, well, since the parents are going to be there Sunday, are we still going to talk about sex? (laughs) And so I said, yes, we we are. (laughs) And so parents, I'm I'm not sure your kids think you know about sex. So, (laughs) So let them know you can handle this topic. So... So our topic today is about marriage and intimacy. And before we get started, I just want to make sure that you understand that intimacy can be found in relationships outside of marriage. But today we're talking about intimacy inside of marriage. And so that's what my focus is going to be, but I don't want you to think that I'm at all saying it's the only place that we can find intimacy in relationship. Generally speaking, when I talk about marriage, I hear one of two attitudes. The first one is, when I get married, I'll be happy. And my response to that is always, really? Well, let's think about that for a minute. You're going to take an imperfect person with what you've already said is not quite happy, And you're going to add another imperfect person with their own weaknesses, opinions, personalities, etc. And expect to be happier than you are now. Look at the divorce rate. Marriage doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make life easier. And if you're not already happy when you get married, the chances are you're not going to be happy when you do get married. The second extreme I hear is, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of marriage. And I understand that attitude. Um, Given the fact that our divorce rate is so high both outside and inside the church, and given the number of marriages that are still together but are miserable marriages, I can see why people feel that way. But, guys, A godly Christian marriage should be different from that. Um, It isn't easy, but it's beautiful and it's good. It grows us and it stretches us and it makes us more like God. It's more than okay to choose not to get married. It's more than okay to be single. But it's not okay to choose that because you have an unhealthy view of marriage. So if we marry, scripture exhorts us to pursue genuine Christian marriage, not to give in to a marriage the way our culture defines it. So I wanted to find something that was a visual of how our culture views marriage and intimacy so that we can start thinking about this today. And this is what I came up with. Isn't she gorgeous? Isn't that romantic? Don't you love that? So this is a picture of an angler fish. This is the fish that was in Finding Nemo when they went way down deep and it had the light on its head and everything. So what I found out at the Perot Museum was that a young, free-swimming male angler encounters a female and he bites into her skin with his very sharp teeth. He then releases an enzyme that dissolves the skin of his mouth and that of her body, and they become fused together, and their blood vessels join as one. Over time, the male loses his digestive tract, his brain, his heart, and his eyes as he further fuses with the female And the male will spend the rest of his life joined to the female. All right, so does that sound good to you? Does this look like it will make you happy? Does that look beautiful to you at all? I would suggest to you that our culture views marriage as ugly, Because it's highly interpreted through the lens of sex. It's highly interpreted through self-pleasing sex than through the lens of self-giving intimacy of which sex is a part. It interprets marriage as a battle for power. And Brad talked about that a little bit from chapter 3 last week. And a losing of our identity. In Genesis 2.24, God says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Instead of the two shall become one flesh, being a beautiful uniting of two people as God intended, our culture sees it as a bid for power where one person devours the other. And thus the picture up there, because the female devours the male in that angler fish. And that's much how our society sees marriage. So we're going to use um, chapter 4 out of Song of Solomon to talk about a godly perspective on marriage and intimacy. So I'm just going to read through that first. And I'm going to tell you that the language of this is very intimate. So chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now there we might have a little bit of a cultural difference in describing beauty. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with the courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and alloys and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. So that's the text we're going to work from this morning. It's a very intimate expression of the lover to his beloved. The language is even a little bit hard to read because we feel like we're kind of intruding on this really private moment. But it's very beautiful. He affirms her and he woos her. And the natural end to this affirmation and wooing is that the woman welcomes her lover with open arms and unrestrained and joyous sexual, emotional, and spiritual intimacy. What do you think, and we've talked about this a little bit as we've gone through Song of Solomon, but what do you think it tells us that God includes this in the Bible? You know, it tells us that God gives his blessing to the wholesomeness, the wonder, and the delight of sex. He is perfectly aware, and you see it all throughout the Bible, that sex can be misused and it can be abused. But when it's part of an intimate marriage relationship as he intended it, God sees it as good. Because of the way sex has been misused, and sometimes I think in an effort to stay pure, many Christians hold this view that it's somehow nasty. And if we have that opinion we need to repent of that and we need to work to change it because that's not how our God sees it. And that's not how he intended it. So the first um, kind of point that I want to make from this passage is that sexual activity is not intimacy. And it's not what Song of Solomon is lifting up as good. And so if we go back to chapter 3 towards the end of it, or the second half of it, I guess, Chapter 3 is contrasting the woman's relationship with her lover with the woman's forced marriage with Solomon. And so what we see is her love with the shepherd is one that she and he each choose. The sexual relationship is one of them giving themselves to each other and not just any person will do. There's only one person desired. On the other hand... Her sexual relationship with Solomon is forced. She has no choice in it. It is a relationship based solely on sex that she cannot say no to. For Solomon, any woman will do. It's impersonal. His pleasure alone is central to the whole transaction. Personhood and intimacy, meaning actually knowing the woman and her knowing him, are obstacles to the exchange and are ignored. We use a lot of terms for sex in our society. And most of them are raw and crude and things that I can't repeat up here. But those raw, crude terms are what a lot of people do. It's not about, it's about using one another and getting off on someone else. It has nothing to do with intimacy, self-giving, knowing the other person, revealing yourself to that person, or serving and loving them. Without a deeper conversion that Christ can do, from taker to giver, from master to servant, from first to last, and user to lover, sexual activity is just a transaction, and godly intimacy is impossible. So Christ is the one that can come in and change that in us. He's the one that can make that right solomon has all these women at his disposal and he possesses no fear of losing them they can just walk away at any time whereas in a real love relationship we have this um, ability to walk away we have a freedom in that relationship we get to choose to be committed in a relationship yet solomon doesn't know anything of intimacy and fulfillment the Bible is praising sexual intimacy, but it's reminding us that sexual intimacy is not that sexual activity is not intimacy and can actually express the opposite of intimacy. That's because intimacy is not a transaction, it's a relationship. It involves vulnerability, letting yourself be known, risk, choice, affirmation, wooing, romance. It's about being naked and unashamed relationally as well as physically with the other. Just as Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed with God in the Garden of Eden. You can have sex with someone and not share anything with them other than your body. Sex apart from relationship and intimacy is wrong. And hear me here, marriage is not an excuse for impersonal transactional sex. That doesn't give us the right to not have relationship and intimacy. It's easy to see that sexual activity and intimacy are not equated because we live in a world where we're saturated by sex. It's everywhere we turn, but we live in a world that's desperate for love. They're not the same thing. They're not equated. Intimacy, the second point that I think we can get from this, is that intimacy is not automatic. Just because you get married or just because you have sex with somebody doesn't mean there's automatically going to be intimacy there. It comes with self-giving. After we look at the impersonal sexual activity that's inferred in the second half of chapter 3, it's significant that in chapter 4, the lover begins with his beloved's eyes. Because you see, to look into somebody's eyes is to see that person and to encounter that person. They can't be just a body to you. She's not merely one woman among many wanted for her sexual charms. She's the only one for him. She is affirmed and enjoyed rather than controlled. He is well aware that she can walk away whenever she wants. Intimacy cannot be coerced. It has to be freely given. There is no possession taken for granted here, no careless assumption by the man of owning the woman. He woos her, he romances her, he gives of himself. Intimacy, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with that word this morning. (laughs) Intimacy is grown within the safety of covenant. When I was working out one day last week, Um, I caught the Today Show's Valentine's episode. And they had invited couples, only couples, that had been married 50 years or longer and that could dance because they were going to do a dance video (laughs) Um, to join them for a really nice dinner and a dance and some of them to make this dance video. And just like chapter 4 in Song of Solomon is such a beautiful example of intimacy, this episode was a really beautiful expression of intimacy. They brought in this singer. Her name is Ingrid Michelson. I'd never heard of her. I don't know if anybody else has. Obviously more popular with some of you than with me. And she was to provide music for the dance. Now she is much younger than most of the wives that were there. And she's very pretty. And there's this clip where she's dancing with one of the older men. And he dances her over to his wife and then leaves Ingrid standing in the middle of the dance floor and takes his wife and dances off with her. And it's just this really sweet, great image of marriage and intimacy. It wasn't based on anything superficial, like looks. It wasn't um, anything except for an intimate knowing and love for his spouse. And it was obvious in that moment that she was the only woman for him. And it's really funny because when he leaves Ingrid standing there, she's like, Hello, what happened here? (laughs) And he just goes off with his wife, and it's really cute. They asked the couples the secret to the longevity of their marriages, and they all said almost exactly the same thing. The most common reason they gave was the belief that when something is broken, we don't throw it away, we fix it. When something is broken, We don't throw it away, we fix it. That's covenant marriage. It's the difference between saying I do and I'll try. It's not a performance contract. It is within the safety of this covenant that we're willing to be vulnerable, to be naked in every sense of the word, to be open and to be honest with one another. Um, Now, I do want to say one disclaimer here is that I do realize that in the world that we live in, there are some things that are broken beyond repair. And abuse certainly falls into that category. And so don't hear me say that you should endure abuse in order to stay in a marriage. Um, I don't think that our God condones that kind of marriage. So, on Facebook this week, a friend of mine posted about their 26 years of marriage, and I just wanted to read this short little blurb to you. Yesterday, we celebrated 26 years of marriage. We both had a full day. I planned his favorite dinner, and he brought me beautiful flowers. Dinner didn't go as planned, so he went and picked up food and brought it home. We ate together, watched a show. He told bad jokes, and I laughed, (laughs) groaned at some. All in all, a wonderful anniversary. Thank you for all the laughs throughout the years and the comfort of just being together. See, that's real intimacy. They knew each other. They know what each other likes. And this is not a couple that has had an easy marriage. They've had some really, really rough times. And it would be very easy for them because they're Christians just to say, well, we'll stay married legally, but we're not going to work at this anymore. But they haven't. They've worked hard, and it's been painful, and it's been hard. But they still can experience intimacy through the grace of God and what God has done in their lives. Intimacy isn't automatic just because you're married. If you're not good at intimacy in other relationships, you're probably not going to be good at intimacy in a marriage. Get good at intimacy in other relationships so you can be good at intimacy in marriage. Marriage is not going to fix that because it doesn't automatically create robust, healthy intimacy. It's something you have to nurture, both in the relationship and both and in your ability to be intimate. So there are some builders of intimacy. Some things that you can do to prepare to be good at intimacy in a relationship in the future. Or if you're already married, some things that you can do to be good at intimacy now. The first one is to avoid pornography. This is such a prevalent thing in our society today. It is rare for us to do pre-E with a couple that both of them have not been affected in some way by pornography or that both of them are not viewing pornography. It's very rampant even in the Christian community. And in some ways, it's viewed as it's not a big deal. It's not hurting anybody. I'm not hurting anybody by doing that. I'm not having sex with anybody. Um, You know, it's not a big deal. So I'm here to tell you this morning pornography is a big deal and if you have it in your life you need to get rid of it today because it kills intimacy it's self-focused and it's the opposite of what intimacy is it does not require self-giving it does not require relationship and those things require a lot of work And so you get this sexual gratification in this way that doesn't require any work to be intimate and to have a relationship with someone. It's that transactional sex we talked about the first part. It's always available. Pornography is never busy, never sick, never tired. It's always ready. It doesn't involve any risk, so we think. But to prepare yourself for marriage and to be able to have a truly intimate relationship, you need to get rid of it because it will kill intimacy in your marriage. Nobody feels like they can compete with that. Nobody wants to compete with that. You're not able to be satisfied with a normal sexual relationship because of what you've been exposed to in pornography. So stay away from it. And if it's already a part of your life, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. If you're married, the same goes. Avoid pornography. It kills intimacy outside of a marriage. It kills intimacy inside of a marriage. So we need to avoid that. Another builder of intimacy is to pursue selflessness. Pursue it for yourself. And if you're not already married, pursue selflessness in a mate. Selfish people offer dysfunctional intimacy. Selfless people offer pure intimacy. The more inward you focus, the more miserable you will be. Sin, selfishness, unopenness, dishonesty destroy love and intimacy because they are the direct opposites of it. Number three, or actually, the, I'm sorry, the third builder of intimacy is keeping sex for covenant marriage relationship. So if you're not married yet, reserve sex for when you're in a marriage relationship. (laughs) If you are married, reserve sex for when you're in an intimate married relationship. Work to make that happen in your marriage if it's not presently there Valuing the other person is another builder of intimacy, not taking them for granted. So to people who are married, taking the other person for granted happens all too often. The legal contracts are signed, and all wooing ceases. Too often, there's no ongoing sense of other. A separate, unique person with whom it's an enormous privilege to spend one's life. Sexual interaction can only ever express what is already there in the relationship. And when we take the other for granted, it becomes humdrum, it becomes predictable, it becomes void of meaning. Intimacy in marriage calls us back to the constant recognition of the other. The one who befriends us not because they have no choice but because out of self-giving and committed love they have chosen us protect and defend your intimacy as a couple the world will try and choke it out if you let it fight with everything you've got to preserve it and to nurture it and then finally a builder of intimacy is romance If you look at chapter 4 of Song of Solomon, you can't help but to see romance in that. Figure it out. Establish it early and keep it alive and kicking in your marriage. Marriage does not mean the end of dating. It means the beginning of dating. Chapter 4 is an example of this. Even though they're already in a marriage relationship... The man tells the woman that she may be one of many women to Solomon, but she is the one and only woman for him. And he tells her so at length, and he tells her so in detail. Because Song of Solomon is kind of this view um, from the woman's perspective, um, I don't want you to hear me say that romance and intimacy is all the responsibility of the man. That is not true at all. Um, It needs to go both ways. It just so happens that what we're using as our text is more slanted towards the woman. So I wanted to read you a poem that our uh, senior pastor at the Garland Church wrote for his wife on Valentine's Day. He posted it on Facebook, so I'm not sharing something that um, he wouldn't want shared. But I think it's a great description of chapter 4 in Song of Solomon written in today's terms. And I'm not reading the whole thing because if you know Ronnie, it was very lengthy. And so I'm just reading part of it. Our love has not always been easy with this mission God assigned us to. It's not been everything we expected, but after it all, I'd still choose you. I married you first, not because of your beauty, not because of what merely was on the outside. I was drawn most by what was deep inside. That's why I chose you as my bride. I loved your kindness that was in your heart. I loved the childlike spirit there as well. I loved your simple and enduring faith, things your tough life could never quell. I loved your laugh and your sense of humor, your original and zany ways, kinds of things I wanted and needed in my life, in my sometimes darkened days. Yes, I've always thought you most beautiful, You've always been the apple of my eye. I know you often couldn't understand how I felt because I was one messed up guy. Though my wires get crossed, my lights short out, I can't figure out what to say or do. There's never been a moment I wanted another, not anybody except you. My feelings are pretty unreliable. My heart I often can't trust. My love for you is so much more than that much more than desire or fleshly lust. You've always been the one I've wanted and needed during my darkest and most depressed times. And though sometimes my mouth can't quite express it, please hear my sincere thoughts expressed in rhymes. See, that is a knowing of the other person. That is a knowing that she has a choice and that she's chosen him. It's a knowing that she has given herself and made herself vulnerable as well as he has done the same with her and it's an appreciation and an affirmation of that. Those things are all part of intimacy. They're all part of romance. Romance is not what you see in movies and what you read in books. That's not what romance is. It's a part of it, sure. Some of it is. But these are the things that true romance and true intimacy are made of. And then I said finally on that last one, but I forgot I had one more for (laughs) building intimacy. Sorry, just kidding. Um, And that is make spiritual health your number one priority. Make your relationship with God your number one priority. Healthy disciples make healthy marriages. And so couples that have a foundation in Christ... Couples that have been a part of communities like Focus are so much better equipped for marriage and for success in marriage. God is not going to ask us at the end of our life if we're married, if we had a happy marriage. What He's going to ask us is did our marriage show a picture of His love to the world? Did it show a picture of love to the person I was united to in marriage? That's what he cares about, and that's what true intimacy is about. And so if you want to be able to build intimacy, then you need to get in a good place with God, and you need to be intimate with him first, and that will flow over into your relationship. How much time, dear? 30 seconds? Okay. All right, so the last thing that I was going to talk about, and I won't go into it in detail, um, but I do at least want to mention it if I can find it here in my notes because I think it's important. Um, Oh, and that is that intimacy in marriage reflects our relationship with Christ and just how really cool this thought is. Um, Scripture exhorts us to pursue genuinely Christian marriage rather than giving in to the definition of our culture. For Christians, marriage is a lifelong covenant partnership made before God in which a man and a woman agree to belong to each other for life. There is mutuality as each submits to the other out of reverence for Christ. There's radical commitment to each other. Does that sound familiar? Like Christ's radical commitment to us? God's radical commitment to us? in a one-to-one relationship and constant physical self-giving. It's the same things that define authentic discipleship because Christian marriage reflects the relationship we're called to in Christ. We worship a God who affirms us and respects our freedom even as he woos us and desires our intimacy. We're called to love a God who loves us one-on-one in a radically committed way looking for our commitment in response to that. He's a God whose self-giving is constant and whose self-giving is best reflected on the cross. Above all, God wants relationship. It can go wrong when daily attention is not given to the growth because it assumes things about the formal status of that relationship. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we don't pursue intimacy with God because of the fact that we've been saved. It's like, okay, because I'm saved, then there's no reason for me to pursue this intimate relationship with him. And how wrong is that? The Pharisees took refuge in legality when summoned to relationship. And you can read the Gospels and see how that went over with Christ. He was not pleased with that. It is never okay to have connection on the basis of legality without relationship being there likewise I don't think that Christ is pleased when we just stay married he said that he came that we might have life and have it to the full and I believe he was talking about marriage and including marriage there so we need to make sure that we work hard that we don't become lazy and that if things are not good in our marriage, that we do whatever it takes on our end, whatever we can do on our end to make that better and not just be satisfied with staying married. Okay, so in conclusion, I just want to remind you that the Song of Songs is God's declaration that sex is part of an intimate covenant relationship and is good And that chapter 4 gives us a beautiful example of intimacy. Sexual activity is not intimacy. Intimacy is not automatic, but it's grown within the safety of covenant. Intimacy in marriage reflects our relationship with Christ. And most importantly, that there are things you can do to get good at intimacy. And so pursue those things. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to move into our thought for communion and take communion together. God, I just praise you and thank you that you took the time to let us know that you believe that intimacy and marriage and sex are good things and that um, you would help us to build those things in our lives. And when it's not easy that we won't be lazy that will work hard, and God, that we'll be able to have relationships um, and marriages that honor you and that keep you at the first and foremost. We thank you for presenting us with a beautiful example through your relationship with us of how you want us to relate to other people and, in particular, how you want us to relate inside the covenant marriage. I pray that our any of us, that choose to be married, that our marriages will reflect your love to the world and to our spouse, and that they would honor you. And we just lift those up to you for your healing and lift them up to you for your glory and your honor. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, um, when we were taking communion, there was a question about uh, why we do that. And so that was just kind of a, a reminder to me that we need to kind of go over that again. Um, obviously, I could preach a whole sermon on the importance of communion, and I'm not going to do that. But I do want to read you one scripture for you to think about as we take communion today. This is 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. of why communion is important and why we take communion. One is to remember Christ and the other is to proclaim his death until he comes again. Um, It's important. It's serious, but it's also a celebration of what Christ has done for us. And so we may do things a little bit differently when we take communion than you're used to. Um, We have three different people. They are holding a basket of um, cracker, which is our bread in a goblet of grape juice, which is our cup, and we take the bread and dip it into the grape juice. Um, But while we take communion very seriously, we also take the fact that it's a celebration very seriously. And so we aren't quiet and solemn. um, We talk with one another and interact with one another while we do that. If you have something to share about what you remember about Christ, this is a great time to do that with the people that are around you when you're taking communion. And then I would just say that whenever you have questions about stuff that we do in our service on Sunday, feel free to ask those. And um, Those are good questions, and they're good reminders for us, and we don't want any of you wondering about why we're doing something. So always be sure and speak up and ask about that. And we're going to talk about communion a little bit more in the coming weeks, but that's just a thought for you to chew on today. Um, so let's take communion together right now.